and welcome to the Violinist Podcast. Today I am happy to introduce the brightest violinist of the modern Norway, artistic director of the Arctic Philharmonic Chamber Orchestra, Henning Kragerud. Hello, Henning. Hello, I'm very pleased that you invited me to your podcast. I'm also very happy to see you in our podcast. Are you also teaching nowadays? Maybe you can tell a bit. Yes, Norway is uh, still open now for most part of teaching, not big classes, but I can have my regular violin students one to one. And uh, my chamber orchestra in uh, Tromsø, we also have uh, restrictions of up to 100 audiences. So I'm, I'm very lucky that I can still play concerts, some, some concerts, but many places of Norway do not have concerts as well. And of course, I haven't traveled internationally for a long time. Well, if we are talking about restrictions and this COVID thing, I would like to say that I greatly appreciate what you are doing. Because, for example, last spring, when the whole pandemic situation started, you wrote two big art articles about how to stay motivated, which, uh, in my opinion, helped uh, many musicians. Also, I personally got pretty much inspired when, in the first day, when restrictions in Norway were partially lift off, you had concert with the Stavanger Symphony Orchestra, right? Yes, that is true. It's really nice. I'm very happy that you enjoyed these articles. So uh, please post links for your listeners so they can read it. They are still available at classicquarantena.no. And uh, the main goal with these with this, uh, articles was that the pandemic was for many a new type of situation. But for me as a traveling soloist, I have been so much lonely and alone at hotel rooms around the world that I have had through most of my life to deal with loneliness already. And then I thought some of these experiences could maybe be useful. And I've got a lot of feedback from around the world that it, it, it was indeed helpful, especially this aspect that when you cannot play together with anyone, there's still way, ways to play chamber music like with yourself, that you can record yourself and with some headphones play along with yourself and it will still be a type of communication. It's like musical self-reflectation in a way. So, um, and my teaching philosophy is any way that I want to encourage my students to find their own voice. And I think the best way is through creative processes. So improvising, composing and other ways is actually also the best way to develop what I call true technique. So how I defined violin technique is technique is actually the ability to express what you feel. So if you don't really know what you feel about a piece, you cannot have a true technique either. It will be a different type of craftsmanship that you try to not play bad or try to reach a standard of some sort. But if you start rehearsing pieces with getting to know, know the piece, start to get to love the piece deeper and deeper, even before you pick up the violin, then the, the sort of direction towards what I call true technique is 
shorter and clearer. So I find in today's world that uh, it is very, very important to fight a certain type of perfectionism where people try to play perfect and it, to replace that notion with to play meaningful. And meaningful is, can always be achievable. I think every day you live in a pandemic or out of a pandemic, you can always search for meaning and you tend to find what you search for. So if you search for meaning, you will find it. So I usually, when I start a new piece, I would sit down by the piano playing a little bit about the chords, start to think about the music, look for different uh, motifs and get to know, know. When I feel that I already love the music, not only the violin part, but the harmonies and all the things, then I have a story to tell. And then the practice goes much, much faster and I have a direction, I don't get lost. While in the old days, if I tried to not play out of tune or similar things, I got, got lost in the woods and got confused and felt further apart from myself. So as of relatively lately, I have thought, I want to treat my students and myself better than I have done in the past. And I do believe now there is a possibility from the very start of learning a new piece until you start to play it in concert, that the entire process can be meaningful without stress and a possibility to grow as a human being. And since then the practice itself becomes so important and meaningful. This is also important because then it's not about did this concert go well or not well, because even if one particular concert should go less well for some reason, I don't love the piece less and I still love the process. So to not have that feeling of constant exams where you could fail, I've tried to translate this into I'm searching for meaning in a field where I love sort of so much and the travel, including the practice, teaching, and concert are just part of the same thing. And it's a possibility for me to express valuable things about what it means to be a human being from my point of view, and also to share that with other musicians or students. And in this process, I think that modern education, already from you start at school, normal school at the early age, have failed miserably, that every child around three, four years old loved to draw drawings, build things in, the, in sand, be creative artists. But sometime during the education, we are encouraged to do as the teacher tells us or do as it says in the score or follow something else. And we are not nearly enough encouraged to find your your own voice. What do, you, what do you love about this piece? Why do you want to play this piece? And then to bypass all of that in the fastest possible way, I found that improvisation, which can lead to composition, is actually the fastest way of becoming really uh, accomplished as artists and then not merely as craftsmen. 
And if you look back at where did it explode, when did the violinists become and pianists become suddenly much, much better? Maybe you can argue it happens around Paganini, Franz Liszt, Chopin, uh, pianists and other. Then suddenly the technical craftsmanship level rised very, very fast. And all of those did improvise and compose. And I found out since I composed myself that to compose a piece is probably the fastest way to learn it. Once I've composed it, it takes absolutely very, very short time to learn the piece, while a similarly difficult piece by another composer, if practiced the old way I used to practice from the violin part, trying not to play bad, is a very long process. So then, even when I then play a new piece by Jana Czech or a composer, I try to get into the same feeling that I have when I improvise and compose. So I will look for meaning, build possibilities, and when I reach the stage that I love the whole piece, then I also have a story to tell, and then the actual practice I do with the violin under my skin, uh, shin is much more focused, and I reach other places. So. Uh, anyway, I don't know if any of what I'm telling makes sense for you, but I would like to constantly, this is why I'm so happy that you invite me to your podcast, be a voice. So when I read on social media, oh, practice more, or you need to do, I mean, we get sort of vague uh, advices all the time, but we are not encouraged enough to find your own voice and follow where that leads you. And we are even met with sometimes what I call ruling techniques by conductors and teachers. And they would say things which in the beginning doesn't sound so bad, maybe, that, oh, you should respect the composer's intention, not do the crescendo or ritardando because it's not in the score. But if you look at a statement like that, that teacher or conductor, they don't know the composer's intention. And if you ask a question even further, is it our duty as musicians to do the composer's intention, even if, if we were to know it? So I actually think in, in other types of music, if you were a pop singer and you were to, to sing one Elvis song and you try to do it exactly as Elvis, people would say, oh, you should bring something of your own into it. Don't be a copycat. Don't try to do exactly what the original did. And are we really doing this in classical music or do we sort of try like dogmat dogmatic religious people to say this is the truth, this needs to be played like that too often. And of course, it's very seldom that people would say it right out. But when it's sort of felt that you cannot really take that liberty by the student and that you have to obey certain rules and they're not even told, they can be dangerous. So in the fairy tales, in Norway at least, we have quite often these big trolls. And those trolls can live in mountains and they're very dangerous. But if you get them out in the sunshine, they will either turn to stone or uh, die or something will happen. So some of these false truths which we are sort of believing in, if we really start to think about it and following that line of thoughts longer, it might lose power over us. So 
every language on earth has this expression to take a liberty. I want to teach my students to take that liberty, not feel like victims to notation, victims to composer, victims to conductors. Any time you feel like, oh, but I cannot do it. Sometimes I ask my student, oh, why did you do that accent? Did you like it? And if they answer, no, I don't like it, but it's in the music. This is sort of not a good enough question. Either you find a way to express yourself through that accent, or maybe don't do it. And this is also the, in the music history, which I, I, I tend to teach like practical music theory, which I call, call it, all the theoretical subjects through a piece of music. And in the history of music notation, it's also very interesting to know that notation, like in Bach's Sonata, it says almost nothing. It doesn't say a tempo, almost no dynamics, nothing. Something was maybe implied knowledge about chords, but even here scholars do tend to uh, disagree about that. But then if you, you see then the need as the music got more complex, more and more players play together in orchestras, and rehearsal time and other things, the composer started to write certain things into the score. But was it meant as the only way or just as sort of a something to get people invested in the piece enough to sort of like it in the first place? And there is this very, very interesting conversations about with Ferdinand David and Mendelssohn, because they were planning how to publish Mendelssohn's violin concerto. And then between them, they wrote letters and let's not do the mistake we did when we published Beethoven Violin Concerto. Then we published the score just there without any expression marks and dynamics. And people didn't put enough of themselves into it. So we need to give them a starting point or something like that, they say. And I find that very liberating. And even more, this quote from Isai when he wrote his solo sonatas, where he wrote that I've meant something with every expression mark, every fingering, every tempo change in the scores. And I ask you to study that before you change it to something you like better. So it is not meant as a punishment. This is the way you have to do it. So what I wish for Berenreiter, Henlein, all this Urtex edition to do is to print these things I've luckily found through letters and articles by Clive Brown. For instance, in masterclasses around the world, I've been teaching the Debussy sonata very often. And people, when I ask, oh, why do you play this so fast or slow? And they say, oh, there is this metronome marking by Debussy. But if you look into what Debussy thought about the metronome, he thought it was an absolute unmusical device. And he said, about my metronome markings, you should try to think about this as the smell of roses in the morning. They soon lose their sort of fragrance. So with my metronome markings, it's good for about one bar. After that, you should follow your heart. But of course, people get the Urtex edition and they know, don't know this and they thought, oh, 50 for the half note, this is Debussy, and they try to force their creativity within sort of current spoken and unspoken rules of today which was absolutely not applying at all at the time of Debussy. <laughs> and even further in that direction, I think is this uh, story, which is about 
have you heard the, have I told you or written down the story about Ravel and Toscanini? So the famous conductor Toscanini conducted a lot of the music by Ravel and Ravel was very pleased about that. And then he said to Toscanini, thanks for being such a good ambassador for my music. Oh, it's a pleasure. I love your music. And Ravel says, but I think you tend to pick a bit too fast tempos. I would prefer that you conducted it a bit slower. And Toscanini says, it's funny that you say that because I, I prefer faster tempos, actually, as I was reacting a bit on the, you know, uh, tempo markings. And Ravel said, yeah, well, please play it slower. And Toscanini said, no, I'm not going to play it slower. I like it faster. And then Ravel got a bit cross and he said, well, then I would prefer that you don't conduct my pieces. And then, and this comes the brilliant answer from Toscanini. And he says to Ravel, oh, you misunderstand. I do love your music and I will continue to conduct it the way I feel about it. So even the composer himself, Ravel, was trying to slam a door shut in front of Toscanini, taking away Toscanini's liberty. But nobody can shut the door of your creativity in the very end except yourself. So Toscanini said, okay, hear what you say. I still know what I love and I'm going to continue with what I believe in. And I think this is totally liberating. I think once a composer has thrown a baby out in the world, or not a baby in life, but then it starts to live its own life. And we should do more like they would do in the theater world. If you play a piece by Shakespeare, you will do some adaptations. You would not necessarily say every word exactly the way. You will not follow everything, but you will try to find how is this relevant today? What do I feel about it? What do I want to do with it? So I tell my students, if Grieg in his sonata wrote a crescendo which you love, and this is from personal experience, but then after playing it nine times in a concert, suddenly in the concert you feel like doing a diminuendo instead. Don't do as I did, because you will feel that you fail yourself if you do something because it's printed in music when you clearly feel otherwise. And of course, it helps me to know that Grieg in his recording of his own piece don't do what's in the music at all. But I think you have a duty to be true to yourself. You shouldn't do things you are not feeling. That even trumps notation, it trumps anything. So Schumann maybe was the clearest one. He said, when you go to stage, you should play music that you love. You should be curious about other music to see if you can love it, but you should not sit on stage and play music that you don't love. <laughs> and I think this is very, very good. So one time I was asked by a German uh, journalist in, a, in a, a paper that, are you not afraid that classical music will die out? And I answered, no, I'm not afraid because we have so much treasures which can, can be found again and again by different artists. But ultimately, if we were to die out, it would mean that we have failed at it and that we would deserve, deserve to die out. So we have to take the responsibility to go on stage and present things which comes from our own hearts and that we love ourselves. And 
ask yourself this, this question. Would I rather go to listen to this concert I'm about to play than to see this and this series on Netflix or HBO? And if the answer is, oh, this is a very exciting series on HBO and Netflix and concert, classical concerts are quite often boring, then I think, well, then we need to change something so the classical concerts gets more interesting than all the competing uh, entertainment for the audience. Anyway, now we've been talking for a long, long time in a row, so feel free to ask some questions about anything, even, you know, fingerings and bowings and whatever. It doesn't everything need to be sort of big philosophical things. It can also be practical. Yeah, I have a lot of questions. Uh, for example, uh, we talked we talk here before about musicality and skills uh, with previous guests. And also I remind myself that what I heard most about my playing that it's not in the traditional way or no one playing like you are playing. And it's funny because when you ask uh, most violinists uh, say, oh, you know, in 20th century violinists had much more individuality. But at the same time, as you said, when it comes to studies, uh, most teachers don't study, don't, don't teach to play individual. They are just, you should play like this, like that, especially if you play Bach or Mozart. And hence, classical music is losing grounds to more interesting cultural uh, expressions. So I think we have allowed to, for too much of our world to lose that power of being right from the heart of the... Uh, and we are not encouraging that either enough. So this will lead to a terrible end unless we start to really fight it much more than we are doing today. And what is a better time than to do that when we are going to build the world again after this pandemic? This, this is a fantastic opportunity. Every situation has resources in it now. It could be like when Europe was built up after the Second World War or other things like that. Things are somewhat in the ruins around. But the, the wish for meaning, I think, is stronger than ever. And now we can actually build a much better world. We don't want the exact world we had before the pandemic. We want a better world. And what, I, what is also important for me is that I believe very, very much in the power of creative artistic expression, not only by professional artists, but in the whole society. So I think during the pandemic, you know, culture have been sort of deemed by many governments a bit unnecessary, like this is not a critical structure of the community, so let's close it down. I think this is degrading what our ancestors fought for when they built all the nations. I mean, culture is, I believe, important in much other fields than we would normally think. I think if we are to succeed fighting climate change and poverty in the world and we say to people oh you should not uh, use so much resources and you should be more tolerant and solid solidarity to people and uh, use less uh, you know material things this we have tried for 30 years it doesn't work and what the politician says it doesn't work but if you can 
give people the choice. Oh, now you can have your current life or you can have a life which is much more interesting where you can be creative and create things yourself and we can get this into the education and school system. Then people could freely choose that they would like their lives to be become more meaningful in a way and the, then the consequence could be that uh, how we are actually shaping society we, that currency like artistic meaningful expression could become a currency in itself that people will judge the life how meaningful is it can i express myself in a different way and that would take away the urge for buying more and more unnecessary stuff uh, and using too much resources by replacing it with something more enjoyable, more meaningful. So I think so far the last 30 years, politicians have made equations which do not add up. So we will never reach 2030 goals for environment or 2050 goals for environment or fight poverty the way we have done it so far. So what is the most unused possible thing we could add to these equations? And I think that would be thinking artistic expression to build enthusiasm right from the start. So this creativity every children have when they are three, four years old and draw, Let's not extinguish that. Let's rather think, can this even be used in the teaching of mathematics and science? Could it be used everywhere? And then we can create this type of enthusiasm, which would possibly then lead for people to wanting something different, wanting something which is better. And some people would then say, well, not everybody could be artists. I think everybody are artists. I think we are storytellers. You look back at the first thing, things we know about humans, these kind of cave uh, paintings 80,000 years ago, through the Greek epos, to the philosophers, through all of history, we have been storytellers. And all of us are storytellers. But as of lately, we are more consumers of other stories and less actively storytelling but here also comes the social media and internet and other things to the help so it's easier than ever to become a creative artists not consumer and we can build this into the very fabric of education so if you then make new equations is it possible to reach the goals for a better climate and a more fair world where we are not having slaves in a different part of the world, calling it trade deals and all the things we get better conscious and actually change. Yes, I think it is possible, but not without the creative voices created through sort of art and other uh, ways of really expressing enthusiasm. So when we are presented by scientists, by this, this and this is how the world is, they just look at a very slim slice of the world. Also in this pandemic, all we have to trust the experts. Well, the experts are experts in a very narrow field. And when now the cultural life are many places in the world really devastated, 
of course, this is not the experts of uh, intentions of those experts because they are experts in too narrow fields. So we cannot allow ourselves to be just expert in one little field. We have to see the whole society. And this is also a responsibility being an artist in classical music life. You have to form an opinion about the whole society. How can I be a voice not only making great art, but actually contributing to the world moving in a direction uh, where, which is possible? Because, of course, it would make no sense to fight for classical music life if anyway the, the planet becomes uninhabitable after some while, then, I mean, then it's really lost. So uh, there is one world and there is sort of one future for all of us. And I do believe the least tried things in any equation also for global, um, global warming environment and uh, poverty and all conflicts. The most, the least used thing is within the field we are now. And then we cannot rely on politicians and experts to find that out for themselves, but we have to be an active voice out in the world. And then maybe it can change. Look at what Greta Thunberg, this one uh, Swedish uh, girl, managed. I mean, she created a lot of enthusiasm. And even if that was not directly sort of linked to art, it was an enthusiasm absolutely not only, it wasn't only linked to science either. So it was very creative and the persons around her has also helped that. So I do believe this type of enthusiasm, when I'm, I have been most enthusiastic in my uh, life, has almost always been connected with some, some type of artistic expression or really good, and I would include that. So the very best journalists write, writing about the problems in the world, of course, they are also writers. So they, when they write well, they will not only write to the analytic parts of the brain, but to the whole person, and then they will be like a novelist. So they are also artists. So you can write about the subject and be an artist. Now, if we can encourage from kindergarten through the school system in every subject, this type of enthusiasm, this is what I am about. And I've, then when I fight for what I, my little niche, which is sort of classical music and this expression, it is also part of the big, big uh, scene, the big world. So it's not a separate thing, but it's connected with everything. So, uh, so this is sort of my political uh, <laughs> or trying to see the world as one unit and to fight that the thing I feel now during the pandemic is people are reducing the value of art and there are many voices who, who seems to not think about it as being a critical thing for society. And I do believe they are wrong. So I think we will get a lot of problems unless we, we, we start to express back to the whole society what we mean. Thank you for listening to the first part of our interview with Henning Kragerut. Continue listening to the second part in one week.